friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You are tuned to the Dave Williams Podcast. Nah, <laughs> that'd be funny, right? No, it's the MC Lars Podcast. You know that because this is episode 26. It is Monday, February 25th. March is upon us. And uh, we have a very cool guest this week. We always have great guests. I always start the podcast being like, we have a very interesting guest, but we do. This guest is a little different. You know, like often I interview rappers or like tech creators and stuff. This week's guest is Vini Caruana, and he is a punk singer, I guess post-hardcore rock. We'll get into more of that, like the specific genres, but he's different. He's a friend that I met years ago when I'm Avalanche and I played a, a college show together. He he was in, first in a band called The Movie Life, and then he was in The Avalanche. He's done a lot of other projects. He's done a lot of solo stuff. And the first time I got to really tour with him was Warp Tour 2013. And the first time we like hung out extensively, we were at the Lake of the Ozarks for a day off, which, you know, that resort later became the theme of that famous Netflix show. But this was before that. And um, we were swimming in the lake and talking and hanging out. And, you know, we got to know each other. And so when I started this podcast, I thought this would be an interesting guest to have because Vinny and I have always crossed paths kind of. We worked with a lot of the same producers, Mike Sapone in Brooklyn, who did the Laptop EP and The Graduate produced the early movie life stuff. And then Vinny was briefly in a band called Head Automatica produced by the Rondo Brothers with this guy Dan the Automator who did the Deltron album and worked on Gorillaz years ago. And I worked with uh, the Rondo Brothers on Robot Kills and they produced the whole Digital Gangster LP. So we always kind of cross paths like ships and the night. So we had a good talk. We talked about the time he decided not to be straight edge anymore. Great interview. Before we get into this, I wanted to mention that in case you wanted to hear more of me talking to people, if this podcast were not enough, I wanted to recommend the Oh No Lit Class podcast with Megan and RJ. Uh, on episode 53, they interviewed me about my thoughts on Huck Finn. And uh, I wrote a song, many of you know, Huck Finn's on the run. So they reached out to me. So I was a guest on their podcast and they were very funny. Their podcast, each episode, they talk about different versions of the great American novel and they have their perspective on it. And just, it's great. It's a funny way to learn about literature. So they had me on and that was tight. And I got thinking about the great American novel, like shortly after I was on that podcast. And I guess there are like four books that I would say are contenders for me, for the great American novel. Let's go over them. Huck Finn, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. It's a story of racism and friendship and a changing American South. The Great Gatsby, which I feel like reflects the whole Instagram culture of like trying to project something you think society expects you to be to find love and acceptance and the shortcomings that come with problems with like putting your image before your identity and but also the mystery and grandeur of Gatsby. Um, Moby Dick is another contender for the great American novel because it's about manifest destiny and mankind's desire to conquer nature and find purpose in action. And finally, a fourth book, which I would say is a very strong contender for the great American novel, is David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. Now, those of you who have been listening to the podcast for a while know I talk about David Foster Wallace a lot, and I talk about this book. And I'm doing a show in Kentucky in a few weeks, a week, I guess, no, two weeks, and I'm interviewing this guy, Greg Carlisle, who wrote a great book on Infinite Jest, breaking it down, all the themes and stuff. Infinite Jest is a great book and looks at freedom and the American dream from another perspective. It's a story of this cartridge that was created by this kind of scientist, inventor, artist guy. This cartridge, which is like a DVD that if you watch, you can't stop watching and it kills you. I think this book is really relevant now because David Foster Wallace predicted a lot of things. Like he predicted 
FaceTime. He predicted DVDs. He predicted a lot of things that hadn't come about when Infinite Jest was written. And this past week, my wife and I took a trip to Marfa, Texas, which is a beautiful town in West Texas that this dude Donald Judd kind of made popular when he moved there and started doing these big installation minimalist pieces. And he created this whole amazing museum. If you're ever out in that part of West Texas, you should check it out. We also got to go down to Mexico through Big Bend Park and go to Boquillas and uh, hang out in Mexico. I'd never been there. But the reason I talk about Marfa is because being unplugged from my screen and listening to actual radio, it just made me more mindful of my time. Being in a natural place away from the city does that. So yeah, I just, I don't know. I've been very thoughtful these days, thinking about like where we're going, what we're doing, the state of our country, the state of media, the importance of communication and ideas, the importance of culture. And to finish everything off, on the way back, I watched this movie on the plane called The King by Eugene Jarecki. And it's the story of it's the story of Elvis mirrored with the rise and fall of the American Empire and how Elvis kind of was this, you know, cultural export that everyone had to appreciate and listen to because America's culture was so dominant post-World War II. There are a lot of questions of appropriation and whether, you know, like why later in his life he spiraled down dying at 42, overweight and unhappy. I've been very thoughtful about all these threads between like what makes our heroes, what is the purpose of all this? Why do we create things? Why do we communicate? We're at a border right now, right? And crossing down to Bokias, you know, listening to the radio, all this stuff about the, the wall and the border just made me very thoughtful and, and made me think about the way we understand the world is by meeting each other and meeting halfway. So we don't need to get too political. I've just been thoughtful and thinking about the Huck Finn book and Infinite Jest and the American experience. So those are some thoughts I've had. If you want to hear more of my writing and thoughts about it, check out my Patreon series on Infinite Jest because it's not just about the book. I'm writing about like where we are and what David Foster Wallace means to me. Speaking of Patreon, I want to thank my Patreon supporters, some of my new ones, Ryan, Andrew, and Tori, some of my old ones. Alex, Keegan, and Seth, thank you all very much for your support. If you sign up, of course, you get a shout out. I'm going on tour, so nerdcoretour.com is always the destination spot for those MC Lars tour days. I'm going to the UK. We're celebrating the 10th anniversary of This Gigantic Robot Kills. Feels like it was just yesterday that I was mastering that record, but I'm going on tour in the UK with Megaran, Cuckoo Kangaroo, and a band from Newcastle called Ruled by Raptors. We're going to be March 30th. We're in Southampton. Then we go to Bristol, then we go to Bolton, which is up near Manchester, then Birmingham, Leicester, Lancaster, Leeds, Stockport, which is Manchester, Newcastle, Glasgow, Huddersfield, Nottingham, London. We end on April 13th. So we're basically playing every day. Then I do a Midwest Southern tour with the Nerdcore homies, Frontalot, Megaran, and Shafer the Dark Lord, playing Fargo, North Dakota, April 30th, which is the first time I've ever been to North Dakota. And after this tour... I will only have one state left to play. That's Delaware. That's freaking cool. We go to Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago, Pontiac, Lakewood, which is basically Cleveland, Rochester, Columbus, Pittsburgh, Nashville, Birmingham, Charlotte, North Carolina, Atlanta, Gainesville, Florida, West Palm Beach, which is kind of near Miami, and then Winter Park, which is basically Orlando, Florida. So 30 shows coming up, doing a lot of the Dewey Decibel songs. We have a single coming out March 15th, the Watchmen single with MC Frontalot, Quelle Chris, Miss Eve, Shafer the Dark Lord, and of course Megaran. That's the first single from the album. So there'll be more info on that. Those of you on Kickstarter will have already heard it, but we're doing a bunch of videos and singles leading up to the album release. It comes out the first Friday of June. Let's get into this interview with Vinny Caruana. Great dude. Thank you all for listening. 
I'm MC Lars. This is the MC Lars Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the MC Lars Podcast. I'm here with Vinny Caruana. Did I say that right? You did. Yes. Yeah. And we are here in Brooklyn, and Vinny, he survived the rain and the lightning to come do this interview. For that, I am grateful. I have wet pants for, for the listener. I have wet pants. I'm barefoot. <laughs> this is the first time I've ever been to Lars's apartment. I feel like you look right at home, or is that just because you're soaked? It's Yeah, it's because... Because I have no nothing on my feet, so I've made myself at home, yeah. And this is also a first. Vinny is using the camping chair I had by the couch to conduct the interview, and he looks a lot more comfortable than all of my previous guests. So I think you've started a new tradition I'll offer people. <laughs> it's definitely better than sitting on the edge of this couch. Vinny, I wanted to talk about a memory. This is a Warped Tour memory that sticks with me, and I wonder if you remember it. Okay, twenty Warped Tour 2013, we were... Um, with William Beckett and the crew, and we were at the Lake of the Ozarks. It was a day off, and we all bravely swam off the dock across the lake and back. Do you remember this? I do. Um, that was basically the most we've ever hung out. It was like that one day we forged a friendship and then barely saw each other for five years. And, and then I ran into you on, uh, I was warped to a few years ago. It was like a day off, and I was randomly in Brooklyn, but I was living here. Yes. And I ran into you in Greenpoint. Yes, yes. Um, going back to that Lake of the Ozarks day, that was a, that was a wild summer. I mean, I was with, we were all those guys that we were chilling with that day, like swimming in Lake of the Ozarks, which is a, a pretty sick place. I mean, yeah. I had heard about it. It was, it was, it's interesting. And now they have this show about it, which I watched the first season of. Um, that day was awesome. I just remember getting super stoned and... Um, going swimming with you and William, and we were with a bunch of other people. Do you remember who else was there with us? Because there was like 12 people on our bus. I don't know who was hanging. I think John, my drummer, was with us. Yes, he was. And maybe like um, one of Mac Lethal's, like maybe Patrick, his hype man or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, yeah. It, it was, was a ragtag bunch. <laughs> it was like a ra the random bunch who were like, yo, let's go swimming. <laughs> That's the way I felt that whole summer. Uh, I was on Warp Tour alone for like a month. And you had was that the like first time you'd done Warp Tour as a solo artist? Um, I did it. I I did it on Brian Marquis' state acoustic stage, but um, the band was there, so like I was on a bandwagon with my band, and then we would play our band set, and then I would go play a solo set in like a mellow setting. So it was cool. But this time I was for that. Oh, good portion of the summer i was on a i was alone but i was on a bus with a bunch of djs rappers production people singer songwriters and we had like an epic summer together we it was like lit, it was a totally full bus yeah of people that didn't had never met each other uh it was totally like the real world <laughs> <laughs> and that's when warp like like those years towards the end he kevin had some very eclectic acts mm -hmm. it kind of distilled to like it's tr to its origin at the end but like those three years i did it it was very much like djs and acoustic and and rappers and like usually i'd be on a bus with just other rappers or other djs never with you know singer songwriters so that what was your cool. traveling situation on that tour 
We were on a bus. We were supposed to be with um, Mad Child. Who, he ended up on our bus. Yeah. He got delayed coming into the country. Mm-hmm. So so I was with basically Cairo Kingdom, they were called their group. Okay. Like a German electronic <clears throat> group. And then all like crew people. Okay. So it was, it was definitely like more chill. It wasn't so much craziness. You know what I mean? Yeah. I liked that part of Warped Tour, like getting to know people from different backgrounds. And you, yeah. al- you always like would see people say hi to them. But your bus became like your family, right? Oh, God, yeah. You're really stuck together. And yeah, it became very clicky, um, which was cool. Which me- Meaning the whole bus was just like a unit and all hung out together every day. And we, we like almost every night when the bus would pull out of the grounds, we'd be like DJing in the front lounge, everybody sitting around dancing, drinking, getting stoned and shit. It was, not, it was good. It was a really cool summer. And I think that like, yeah, like there's that or it can be very antisocial yeah. and quiet. How many warp Tours did you do with like all of your projects combined? Mm, I never did a full one. Um, so Drive Through Records had a warp Tour stage where it was all Drive Through acts. And then Glassjaw was on that stage too, just because they were friends with a bunch of us and uh, friends with Drive Through and stuff. We did like three weeks of that, and then I'm the Avalanche in the early days did like two or three weeks in a van. Wow! Um, which it was that was a little that was a little rough. We had fun, of course, but it, that was that was difficult because um, you got to drive overnight and you're not really getting real sleep. And so I don't know. We did. We were young, so we were able to handle that. But. Um, and then, yeah, Avalanche did another maybe a month, and then I did solo that same tour, and then I must have done a month um, with Brian on that acoustic stage alone. So, four, is that four? Four, yeah. just parts of four. Yeah. So, not like crazy amounts where I know everybody that works for Warp Tour, and you know what I mean? When like the people that go every other summer for the entire thing probably know everybody, all the crew people, like... By name, first yeah, name. Yeah, I, I just knew whoever we were hanging with and i don't know made some new friends for sure though um another thing you and i have in common is we've both worked with the amazingly talented mike sapone yes tell us about the red demo and your and how you met mike and everything with the movie life if i'm getting that correctly it's totally yeah so mike sapone i believe that movie life is the gap between mike sapone and the long island bands that he ended up working with he might be able to, he might disagree. I don't remember, but I remember uh, the movie life being kind of someone that our old drummer, Evan, uh, um, had found Sapone, like a guy to record our demo. Cause the demo, you know, that was just, that was like a release, your demo, you get it. And then you sell it at shows on the merch table, you know? Yeah. So I think he just found Sapone through, I have no idea. Um, and we went and recorded. It was my first time recording. Um, and yeah, it, it ended up being pretty, you know, important as far as we made another t- tape after that. And then we ended up putting records out and signing to labels and then becoming a band that, you know, still tours. So um, the Red Demo is interesting. It's like, um, it's like, uh, it's red. The outside is red and it has a barcode on it. The barcode was part of the artwork. That barcode was not like registered to any sort of product or anything like that. And there's a funny story with that. 
Um, the we ended up playing at this super PC, super indie record store with Botch and Jesuit, and on our first tour, I think, and um, they almost didn't let us play because like our demo looked like it was like corporate or something, and it had a barcode on it oh, or no. something. <laughs> um, yeah. That's like a really vague memory that just popped up that I forgot about. But yeah, Mike Sapone was like definitely like my first real recording experience at his house what and what year do you think that was in um we started being a band in 97 we may or may not have done the demo in late 97 or early 2000 so uh, early 98 wow so 20 years ago yeah yeah so we we started in september of 97 so yeah i don't think we maybe we recorded like a few months later so yeah maybe late 2000 uh sorry late 97 i met mike because my first manager tom gates worked with brand new yeah and he had he found i was on tour in the uk like a a label out there had put out a, a cd i did in my dorm but mike he played it for Mike and Mike was like, this kid is cool. I want to work with him. And like, I similar thing. I'd never been in the studio. This mm-hmm. was 2003. So six, five years after you met him. Right. And um, I remember him talking about you and talking about you guys. And like, I was asking about the scene because, you know, I'm from California and stuff. But I started to realize after working with him, people like Mike are so rare. In, yeah. He's a really rare dude. To have him as like a first production experience is like such a such a because the results uh, tell me if you agree with this the results i found were so good and it was so fun and he was so quick and a great collaborator yeah um you know it's been a really long time since we collaborated it's I, it's hard for me to even remember that session that much but you caught mike um i mean i, I he you caught mike like right before he released the big brand new record, right? Yeah. So, I mean, he had been honing his craft for another five or six years. Hmm. Um, so we had him in his very early days. Um, and I think you had him when he had started to perfect his rock and roll sound, you know? And he'd done, he did a, a Public Enemy remix. That's what like... I remember that yeah. being on the wall, right? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what release is this? <laughs> oh, yeah. It was all remixes, right? Yeah. He like submitted a remix for their compilation album. And it was a big deal that it got picked up and he was <laughs> yeah. really proud of it. And I was really, I am a really big Public Enemy fan. You guys had taken a break for a minute or... Yeah. Like Movie Life's kind of like a... Um, it's not like a hey, we've been a band since '97. We broke up in 2003, right when you were kind of getting started with your recording career, um, and then we stayed broken up until like 2014 or something. Oh wow! We played like one or two um, reunion shows in those ten years or whatever, um, and then we got back together and started playing shows again. Yeah, maybe three, four years ago. Three years ago. And you guys had just missed playing with each other? Or? Um, shit, you know, it's yeah. like, it's anyone listening who's been in a band just, and it, or even in a relationship, like some days you, you, even if it wasn't a good idea or for, if you didn't get along or if it just didn't work the chemistry, you know, personality wise, even if that you, you, you kind of like, 
somehow forget about all that <laughs> because you're just romantic about um, an era of your life and a really important era of your life. And um, so, no, it was more of that where it's always on the back of your mind. And then one guy, it starts to bubble up. One guy's like, hey, we should like play shows, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, you know, we should. And then the next thing you know, we're like in Belgium and... <laughs> Um, yeah. So like that's that's what's going on with us. Um, you know, the way it's been going with movie life lately is it's Brandon, Riley and myself um, are the only like guys from, you know, we're the songwriting and core band force. And uh, we have some friends that play with us and um, it's really fun. It's really, really fun. That's cool. And yeah. and you have, I mean, also so many new people have discovered you. I bet that's dope, right? They missed you. We we just did a support tour for the first time since like 2002, uh, where we supported Newfound Glory and Bayside was also on the tour. And um, it was like really trippy. Like we definitely made new fans. And I don't remember doing like it, movie life hadn't made new fans since... I don't know, we toured with Good Charlotte and MXPX in 2002 or something, yeah. I think was the last like support tour we ever did. Um, so it was amazing to like, for people to dig the new stuff and figure out that I kind of gave them like a one minute little spiel of like, you know, for the people that don't know who we are, this is our little short little story, like, you know, I don't know how many years, 17 years before we were touring with Newfound Glory when a lot of them maybe weren't, you know, into the scene or anything. So like, yeah, I mean, we had our diehard, like old school fans, people that were like, didn't know we were back together, that remember us from the drive through days because of the association with Newfound Glory. And, and then, yeah, a bunch of new people. So we just did like yeah. a six week tour. Huge theaters at better arenas it was maybe big. it wasn't arenas but it yeah. was like um i would say anywhere from like 800 to new jersey was like four thousand or something oh my god so, so i'd say maybe two thousand would be like your normal which is a lot of i mean it's a lot of people something that i learned in all my trips coming to new york was that long island has always been the ground zero for this post-hardcore mashup with melodic music and and I'm sure you've spoken about this at length in mad interviews, but like, why do you think more than any other part of the country, so many big bands with that kind of attitude and that melody came from that place in such a short period? I assume we're talking about Taking Back Sunday, Brand New, Movie Life, Glassjaw, Crime and Stereo, like that. We were all going to shows you're given like any given Long Island hardcore show, and that's a very broad term. Long Island hardcore was just the scene, right? But not all the bands were hardcore, but they all played together. There was some tough guy stuff and like some, like like you said, melodic, more melodic punk or hardcore kind of stuff. Yeah. Post-hardcore, everything. Yeah. And it was mainly because of where we were all at. So we all grew up on Long Island going with like a total scene already happening the scene that was going on when we were growing up before we all started bands was like, it's like a scene that everyone around the world that loves what we all did. They don't, they don't even acknowledge it that it, they didn't even know that it is it, it existed. And now Spotify mm. is, it's records are starting to pop up. Yeah. 
and uh, of records that we were all influenced by and bands that we would go and see every weekend. So being on Long Island, having an already like just flourishing scene of amazing local bands, bands like Silent Majority, Mind Over Matter, Neglect, um, stuff like Vision of Disorder, like really sick, amazing bands, crazy shows, tons of kids. Yeah. Like every weekend there'd be a hundred more people on Long Island into hardcore or punk. You know what I mean? It was just exploding. Um, and we had New York City. So that was obviously happening in New York City. Those bands would come to Long Island. Our, the Long Island bands would play with the city bands. And now our influences are now all this melodic stuff from Long Island, all this way ahead of its time post-hardcore stuff. You know, Walter's in the city doing quicksand and we're all like, well, quicksand is where it's at. Oh, and then like when bands started coming in New York, like when we started going to see them in the city or when they started coming to play Long Island more, then that started influencing a lot too. I mean, those bands started getting influenced by like, I remember Avail coming, Fugazi coming to like our local club, you know, um, yeah. Refused. And um, Texas is the reason I remember made a huge splash on Long Island. Everybody was like, Texas is the reason. Everybody was just talking about Texas is the reason and Promise Ring and stuff like that. How about Rights of, Rights of Spring or is that kind of older? The older dudes were, would always like be like, you guys need to listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because we were maybe listening to Minor Threat because that's like your entry level hardcore. Like you, you got to like Minor Threat. And right. then maybe some of us skipped over Rites of Spring and some of the other DC stuff because we were just, I don't know, we were like probably getting into Lifetime and stuff like that, you know? And you didn't have Spotify, which is no. the living history. It's all the, on there now. We didn't have anything <laughs> like this. People bought records. Yeah. I was having a conversation about it the other day with a friend of mine. Um, he goes, do you know how many records Movie Life sold? I'm like, no. So, do you remember like what the first week was of like your big record? I'm like, no. <laughs> I, he's like, I do. I want to know. And when he told me the number, I was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Are we rock star? <laughs> like, and I remember like everybody, we would play a show, that, that good Charlotte um, MXPX Newfound Glory arena tour. That, that's the last support tour we did before this last one. I mean, we would sell like 200 records at a show. Yeah, right. So it's like there's like a good chance if you threw a dart into a crowd. Some people got into you in the early hardcore days, but a lot of people got into you on tours like that yeah. where like, you know, I mean, how often is it that you sell that many records at the merch table? You know what I mean? So things are different now. People, you know, people like to buy vinyl, which is cool, which mm. is helpful for both of us, I'm sure. But it's like. Yeah, I mean, people, there was no, everybody was buying music. And the sharing of music was like barely happening. Like Napster had just kind of started when, mm, I guess maybe right towards the end of movie life, I remember like my parents getting a computer and me going on Napster and like just downloading a lot of viruses to my parents' computer. That was like the jump off point where we everyone started discover to discover music but you didn't really know the story about it. like if someone sent you an mp3 you might know the band but you wouldn't know much about them versus going to see a show with your friends and like talking to the band and like all the all the cultural history and stuff like it kind of became this desiccated removed entity which is yeah. good and bad i guess 
you are going into it blind and becoming a pure fan, regardless of like what they look like or what they're trying to represent aesthetically. Um, but yeah, it's good to know like what record that song is on and, um, and, and what that album artwork is. And I mean, yeah, you talk about shows. It's I actually posted something on my Instagram this morning, which is just this flyer that Revelation Records tagged me in from two from the year two thousand, and then I started looking at a bunch of other old flyers, and on the flyer it would list the bands, mm-hmm. and underneath each band it would say so and so records from Long Island, New York, and at least you have this little head start of like, okay, so this is what's going on. These guys, we we would always on Long Island, we would always like, oh wow, that band. Like if it was a band that we knew, we would definitely check them out. If it was a band that we didn't know, and it was like from California, we'd be like, well, we should watch these guys. We gotta like show these guys at Long Island's like you know a place that everyone should come, you know. So that was always a thing. Like um, Long Island was super. I mean, Long Island was always the favorite spot of touring bands mm. um, because they always knew they were gonna get a great show and a crazy response. Um, and that's how we started getting more shows because people would just go to New York City. They didn't know that they were supposed to go to Long Island, but yeah. Long Island became something pe- people would always stop in. Hardcore bands especially knew what was up and that Long Island would take care of them. Were you ever into Adam and his package? Um, we, I never really listened um, as like, you know, I never tur- put, turned the music on and listened, but we had been, we'd play shows together every once in a while way back in the day. I liked how he was, he had a sense of humor, but I yeah. liked his website because he would write a touring blog. Right. And as a kid, I was like, this is so cool. This guy gets to like play all these scenes, meet all these people. And it was, that was really cool to me. And that he was a big influence on me. And when I started, he gave me like the secret list of like DIY promoters. To oh, that's up. huge. So that was cool. <laughs> that's I was, awesome. I was just like the annoying fan who would email him. And he was like, he was, and I, he was nice to me. And I was like, this is like something that, the bands I grew up watching on MTV, they didn't have that same kind of culture, you know? Yeah, and you instantly fall in love with that, right? Like that. He was so nice to me, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, talk to me. And it was like the internet became this this thing that regionally, the space of local com- DIY community like kind of expanded. And I wonder, what do you think it's like now in Long Island? Does, does some sort of threads of that still exist? Long Island is still going. I mean, there's... There's a bunch of bands coming up on Long Island. The scene is never like, you know, I guess it's been a while since, I think I would say, generally speaking, hardcore is coming up on Long Island, uh, or I should say it never stopped. Um, yeah. It's been a long time since a big melodic you know, band of this broad genre like started headlining massive places. But um, as far as hardcore goes, I mean, some of, the world's most popular hardcore bands are from Long Island. I mean, Incendiary is, I mean, I watched a video of them play at This Is Hardcore Fest and I swear I've never seen anything like it. I mean, they, you, one would think that they're the biggest hardcore band in the world. Mm. Um, The reason (laughs) I say that is because I don't think there's a hardcore kid out there that likes real hardcore that doesn't like Incendiary because what's not to like? Backtrack is another band that everyone across the world, like you can talk to kids in Korea and they'll be like, yeah, Backtrack, Backtrack. When I was over, we just were in Japan and Korea and ended up 
There was a good amount of hardcore kids coming to our shows in, in Japan, which is really interesting. It was the first time um, uh, movie life had ever gone over. And I was noticing that I think we had a lot of fans from like early revelation days. It was a really weird mix of fans. It was brand new fans that only know the new record because a great label in Japan called Ice Girls put it out and they got mm. into the new record. And then there was a bunch of people that were like, all right, let's add more revelation records ones because there's a lot of hardcore nerdy people in Japan, just like there are all around the world that are like, oh, they were on revelation. I'm going to check it out. You know what I mean? It's one of those. That's kind of like a cool throwback thing where like the label, look at, see, like seeing your band's name on a flyer, right? The, yeah. The label name. The label would mean so much. Um, signing to Revelation got us a little bit of this hardcore cred where we were never a hardcore band, mm. um, but they what well, we toured with hardcore bands and did hardcore shows and would go over better some nights and worse other nights, but like, those are the channels that we always went through because that's what we knew. We were just hardcore kids. Um, we weren't like, where's the melodic punk promoter? We were like, hardcore scene. This is all we know, you know. Were you part of Head Automatica? I was. For uh, <laughs> That's another uh, connection that we share, the Rondo Brothers. Yeah, right, right. Um, I just emailed Jim before you came in. Cool. Well, right the away. Rondo Brothers are um, part of that story. Um, when Movie Life broke up, Daryl was Daryl had already recorded um, the first Head Automatica record, and he's like, "What are you gonna do?" And I'm like, "I'm you know I'm gonna work." Tim from Vision of Disorder had a construction company. It was pretty depressing. Like I think we played our last show on a Saturday, and then on Monday I had my first day at like a construction site mm. in like Clinton Hill, um, and. Daryl was like, "What's what, I mean? What's your plan?" I'm like, "He's like, I, I told him I was writing music, which which was becoming I Am the Avalanche. I was just writing songs." And uh, he's like, "What do you think about playing at Head Automatica?" Because they didn't really put together a band completely. And um, so I, you know, I, I wanted to get back. I didn't. I didn't want to do what I was doing. And Head Automatica was this. It was really cool. It it brought me out of like the dumps. Um, so basically, he had the record done, they had to mix it, and then they ended up going back and recording more music for it and stuff. Um, I don't think I don't think Beating Heart Baby is just their huge song. I don't even think that was on the record, and then they went and recorded it later, mm. if, I, if my memory serves me correctly. Anyway, being in Head Automatica was really fun for me because I love San Francisco, and Brandon from Rondo Brothers and Jim from Rondo Brothers and Dan the Automator were half of the group. Yeah. So I played two shows. The other half of the group was me, Larry, who's the drummer of Glassjaw, Josh, who's the bass player of American Nightmare, and Daryl. So I was playing second guitar. And um, it was really cool. I went to San Francisco we stayed in Brandon's um, house, mm. like multiple, we had different experiences. We stayed in his living room one time. We kept going back and forth to San Francisco to work on stuff, to do mixing, to put the band together, to rehearse for shows. So we basically just started hanging out in Brandon's um, living room. He was really amazing. Like he's, I haven't hung out with him in years and years, but he was... 
in the hate right in hate ashbury uh he was like on the top of Folsom over there okay. there's like this green kind of grassy park above him just remember him being at the top of a hill near Folsom off of I don't remember um and it was a really interesting it was a really transformative time for me so we were out there having fun the second time we flew out there to do whatever project we needed to complete on the way out um, me and Daryl flying out I've told this story once before on a podcast because it was like a question of when I stopped being straight edge. So I stopped being straight edge in Brandon's living room. I was straight edge from oh, like God. age like, you know, 12 to 23 or something. On the plane, I go, Daryl, um, me and Daryl both got straight edge tattoos together when we were 18. Oh. I was like, I'm not straight edge anymore. And... Part of that actually had to do with Mike Patton, and this was also in San Francisco. Dan had done, um, Dan had done Lovage with Mike Patton, right, right, and Mike Patton and Rozelle were doing shows together. Mm. Do you ever see that? I, I remember seeing fucking wild. seeing it on like YouTube. Where Razel's beatboxing and he's doing like crazy. He's just making all types of like singing and making yeah. voices, like making noise, and it's trippy. <laughs> uh, but we went and saw them at uh, the Great Great American Music Hall while we were uh, staying out there with Brandon. Yeah, and um, Mike Patton was backstage, and we went backstage. And uh, instead of like shaking our hands, he just goes, "Hold on a second, hold on, hold on," waving his hands like. Being this host, like this really cool host of, like, he just pours us shots of Hennessy, I think it was, uh-huh. and he's just like, "Why don't we cheers instead of, you know, let's 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 get on the level?" And me and Daryl are both like, um, "We don't drink," <laughs> and he looks shocked, like, "What do you mean you don't drink?" Like, not like we were obviously young kids. Probably it's not like that we were like recovering alcoholics. He just meant like, he's like, "Oh, so you're hardcore kids that don't drink? You're straight edge?" Uh-huh. We're like, yeah. So ever since that moment, I was like, that's stupid. Like, even if like, I didn't, you know, being straight edge is something I decided when I was a child. Yeah. So it just started mean something different. I was just a guy who didn't drink. I wasn't, you know, affiliating myself with the straight edge anything. And I was like, why can't I have a drink with Mike Patton? It's not like, you know, my life's going to fucking unravel or, you know, I I just started wondering, Mm why i didn't why i didn't have a drink with one of my heroes and it was because it was my instinct to say that because it's been that way for so long and the straight edge police was going to come and get me and people would be like oh he's not straight edge anymore you know what i mean like i was adhering to like this like high school mentality in this like little instant where i had to make a split decision of do i drink i don't drink so on our way back to San Francisco, the next time I told Daryl, I'm like, I'm not straight edge anymore. He's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, as soon as we get to Brandon's, I'm going to ask him for some weed and we're going to, I'm going to break it up. And I'm going to roll a joint. And I'm going to light it and I'm going to smoke it. And he's just like, holy shit. <laughs> he, he blew his mind because uh-huh. we were best buds and totally straight edge for a long time. And, um, so I light I light the joint on Brandon's couch. Within like a minute, Daryl's like, pass it to me. <laughs> he goes, fuck it, I guess I'm not straight edge either. And we smoke, smoked an entire joint, 
So two dudes that haven't been stoned since we were like young, young, like 11, 12 years old. Right. Are smoking an entire joint. Of San Francisco. But. Of Humboldt County. Yeah. Right. Um, we lost our fucking minds. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> and Brandon's upstairs. Yeah. And we're like calling his phone and shit. Being like, what? What do we do now? We were starving, but we couldn't get off the couch. We couldn't get, you know. He's probably was, cooking like delicious food upstairs. <laughs> there was no way we were going to the deli down the street or whatever. Right. We were like, so what do we do? We're starving and we're tr completely tripping on weed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even now, as like, I, you know, I'm a, I've smoked for weed for a while. I still only take like one hit of like a pen or something and I'm good. Right. So yeah, we, we went on a total, totally fucking wasted on weed you jump jump right <laughs> off the, off the building never and never like looked back um but yeah and so i only played two shows with head automatica um one show was at spaceland in la um which which was that whole group that i mentioned dan the automator was next to me on stage with turntables uh for at least one of those shows the, so the second show we played at sundance film festival at like some mm. magazine party and then i and then i quit and i was out of the band wow yeah so you were to pursue <laughs> i am the avalanche so it, but like it's interesting how you and i have this in common like getting our start in in with mike sapone i feel like my career had the second bump when i linked with the rondo brothers yes and um then learning that I could work with different producers and do other projects and like try different styles and like so. Ex can we talk about how I'm Avalanche kind of came out of that tr that experience? Or honestly, like I, I want to add one more thing to those yeah. days. The Rondos were making um, their Hawaiian record. Oh right, I forget what it's called. Yeah, um, and I remember Brandon coming in into the living room. Me and Daryl were sleeping. Uh huh comes into the living room with a nitri like a whipped cream cracker that he had loaded with nitrous tanks. Okay, right. And he's just going, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> like, what's up? And he's just like, <laughs> you guys are going to pay your rent today. We're like, what do you mean? He's like, you guys are going to record on some songs for our record. And that's that's what how you're going to pay me <laughs> for letting me stay, letting us basically just I mean shit, man. <laughs> I love having house guests, but if they came for a month at a time, I'd be like, this is fucking insane. Oh, you were there a whole month? We would be there for long periods of time. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was a month at a time, but certainly a lot of chunks of weeks. Yeah. Um. So that's what we did. So we, we, me and Daryl have two songs together on their first record. Mm -hmm. And then um, I ended up recording a song for their second record too that I actually really like. I listened to it recently and it's cool. Um, we can, I don't know. That's, that's a whole, no, that's a whole other conversation. That's cool. I, um, I linked with them because uh, Miles, who, this guy who managed the matches, mm. had heard. Head or knew about them through Head Automatica, and they had submitted to do like some matches demos. Okay, so we did uh, the matches, and I did a collaboration at Brandon's place, the same place you probably were. Yeah, and um, that's the first time I met them. But it was like it was so fast the way it all came together, and it was so fun because like 
California producers are much more laid back. I don't know. Would you agree? I mean, those guys are crazy laid back. Yeah. And, but super talented and bringing a lot to the table. That room, I think we're talking about the same room. Yeah. There's just instruments everywhere. From around the world. Exactly. So, yeah. like... Well, I mean, we were watching them make that Hawaiian record. I wish I could tell you what the hell it's called. So I'm the Avalanche. Um, basically, that I, I wrote a bunch of songs um, on Long Island and wanted to fuck around. Um, and Daryl had to fly to San Francisco. Uh, I'm sorry, he had to fly back to New York a few times while we were there. So the band was just there. So I grabbed like you know two really sick. Are basically a really sick rhythm section, which was Josh from American Nightmare and um, Larry Gorman from Glassjaw. And I was just, I, the first time I ever heard I'm the, what became I'm the Avalanche songs was me teaching it to them so that I could hear it, mm. you know? And so when we, were, when we weren't doing Head Automatica, if Daryl was going home to do whatever, we would be basically just like jamming on I'm the Avalanche tunes and like, so the first, yeah, the first time I ever ever heard the songs, kind of like they were in my head, was jamming in the, at the Ron, at Brandon's place when we were kind of off the clock. So, and it, you knew that this is stuff that like wouldn't be head Automatica songs because it was no, definitely else. not. And they had a record already recorded. Um, this was totally Daryl's baby, you know. Um, so yeah, this was some. I knew I wanted to go and start another band. I knew I wanted. I had a lot to say. There was a lot going on in my life that uh, you know, I needed to just not. I needed to not be just a guitar player in Daryl's band. I needed to. I needed to like see another thing through. Um, and so I did. I am the Avalanche. What label put that out? So first stuff. I was still on drive through okay. from my previous contract, which. And they still had an option, which they exercised. So the first Avalanche record came out on drive through in like its dying days. Mm. Like it was like its last gasp. There wasn't a whole lot happened after that. Not a whole lot of records got released after that. Um, and then we didn't release a record for six years. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. were you writing or touring or working on other we stuff? We toured a lot. We said yes to almost every tour. We toured for like three years. I mean, we just never stopped. But I'd say we toured for three years on that record just because we were having fun and we were young. We were all in our early 20s, like having a blast, playing some really good tours, playing some really bad tours, um, and becoming like best friends. I mean, yeah. all the guys and I am the Avalanche, I had, I had met everybody, but they had not met each other. Hmm. A lot of guys that I pulled from other bands that we had toured with in the past and guys that didn't have a home and, you know, a musical home. And I know that they were talented and that they were good dudes and fun to hang with. So, yeah, um, they all met at like our first practice. And then like literally we're all like all of us are like brothers. It's it's really cool. It's very special band uh, dynamic we have in I Am The Avalanche. It's pretty uh pretty unique it's it's it, the only the only thing i uh, is that's regretful is that we can't play as much as we'd like to because everyone just has like other jobs and careers and stuff but when we play it's really special and it's always really we play like a lot of songs and like make it count 
and uh, because we know that it's going to be a while before we play again. Mm. And it's kind of like, maybe does it feel like the whole project was this spontaneous gift and it's had so much life, right? Like, do you feel like there's that, you have that appreciation for it existing in the first place? I do. I'm shocked that we still play and then I'm shocked that, I don't know, the thing with, I'm the Avalanche has been this strange and slow trajectory where we put out a record, some people dug it. We didn't put out another for six years. The record after that sounded nothing like the first record, but people liked it. Um, and our fan base and, and the amount of people that come to shows now compared to then, it's just only grown. It's this yeah. really strange world that we live in. Where most of the people that like our band are, are they understand that when we play, that it probably won't happen again for a while. Mm. Not that it's never going to happen, but we can't promise that it's going to anytime soon. Um, so people travel for the shows, um, and we basically play in the Northeast too, which is just easier for us to pull off and people got to be at work on Monday. You know what I mean? Did you find you had like fans of the movie life? They were like, oh, this is Vinny's new project. Or was it when you zero? It wasn't um, starting from zero. We had some people that were interested in what I was going to do next. Um, I'd say I lost a lot of people. A lot of people just went, okay, I'm going to go on with my life. Movie life's over. I'm going to go and listen to you know, whatever new was going on. Um, and, but some people like were like, cool, Vinny's got a new band. And then we put out our record and then that was the polarizing moment. Mm. Like that kind of split the sect even more. There's people, because it sounded way different than movie life. Um, so certain people were like, nah, this isn't my thing. And certain people were growing at the exact same rate that I was growing as a songwriter. And they were their musical taste was growing, and they were like, "Fuck yeah!" So, and most of those people are still come to shows. I mean, a lot of the people that come to see us are over thirty for sure. You know, and that's the cool thing that being able to experiment, start a new band, you've been able to ex- like grow. You, it wasn't like a label telling you an A and R being like, "You have to do high school breakup songs exclusively," or yeah. yeah. Oh man, this band. There was a moment that I was taking meetings like with major labels for I Am The Avalanche because uh, actually, do you you know Tony Isabella? Yeah. Uh, another Ron, there's a lot of these connections. <laughs> yeah. Tony was like, I have a friend that might like your thing. Like we should go and meet him. And then there was a moment where I was like, am I signing to a major label? Like what's going on here? Um, and then drive through, of course, was just like, no, no, we want to put it out. So then th- that was the end of that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, shit, if I would have signed to a major, who knows, like, exactly, man, they I, they may have, like, that record may have never come out. Like, they could have just shelved it and be like, oh, we're releasing the new Green Day, like, I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, Or maybe I'd be some sort of, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think there's any hit songs on the first Avalanche record. It's all pretty stony, and uh, I, I do love it. Um, but I, I I always say I regret the tempos of the songs on the new rec- on the on the first I'm the Avalanche record. Do you feel like they're too fast or too slow? They're too slow. Uh. And it's pretty vibey as a listener, but like we play yeah. it way faster live, and all of our fans know that too. Like yeah. they they overlook that. They're like, they're used to hearing it 
because they see us so many times, but listening to the record feels like it's in slow motion. Kind of like the Misfits, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe that fast or no? No, like, I mean, shit, it's a vast difference, the speed that we play live. And uh, we still feel like the songs flow and there's a good pocket to it and that's all that matters. But we didn't know who we were. We didn't play enough shows to know yeah. how fast the songs were. We kind of got in the studio pretty quick. Um, but yeah, still proud of it. Um, we played a college show together in like 2008 or seven. Yes, we did. And was it with Plain White Tees? Yeah, at Rutgers and Camden. And that's where I first met you, but I'd known about you through Mike. But yeah. that's where I think we played first, you guys were second, and then Plain White Tees. Yes. And um, did you do like a lot of like random college shows during that time? Or was that like an anomaly? We did a lot of random college shows. Um, yeah. We would always be interested in like, you know, colleges, I guess they still do now, but I don't really play a lot of colleges these days because our fan base is not college kids. Um, colleges pay a bunch of money. So what we would do is they they pay bands, like small to mid-level bands, way more than they get paid, as we both know. I'm just talking to the listener. Right. Um, so when you're wondering why that band is playing that random college in your, in that town over from you and like, what the hell are you guys doing here? It's because the band is taking advantage of an arts budget that a college has set aside to pay entertainers to entertain their students. And, um, a lot of times younger hardcore bands and punk bands and people that don't have thousands of fans would take that money and like pay for gas for an entire tour Sure. or like, you know, buy a trailer or the things that you need. Um, so yeah, we ended up playing in Rutgers with you. Uh, I remember getting your book and, uh, and a record. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And, um, and it, and I, it was like a cool shirt too. And plain white tees. Yeah. They had their hit single (laughs) and they were, uh, they were headline. That was a weird show. College shows are weird. And there, I remember during Hey There Delilah, there was a, a mosh bit. (laughs) <laughs> isn't, it, isn't there no drums in that song? This, the guy was just sitting the drummer was doing like accents on the yeah like um, yeah. yeah and so people started getting rowdy and it was like a, that was like a very a my spacey moment <laughs> oh god yeah that was an awkward time that uh, we 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 discussed that as i'm the avalanche like we decided to be a band in a really weird time i mean ending like Everyone's putting on makeup and playing like this, like pseudo rock metal and sampling beats. Stuff. Yeah. And where the hell did I'm the Avalanche belong in all of that? Nowhere. <laughs> um, I would say that I, that first Avalanche record would have been better served, like getting released 10 years later, um, which is a lot of those bad tours. Like we would say yes to tours because there'd be people to play in front of, but mm-hmm. like. We were like this melodic, post-punky, I don't know what the hell we were, but we were playing with like, I don't I don't know who was around back then. Um, did you ever play with- <laughs> Scary kids, scaring kids, <laughs> shit like Broken that. Broken side. That was after. Yeah, after I think you. that was after. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just very interesting because like sometimes being ahead of your time can serve you well later. You know what mm. I'm saying? Like, yeah. now it just seems like you guys have this reputation. And you as this artist, like, bands want to sound like that era now. It's right. a golden era. 
<laughs> yeah, and I will say the the Avalanche records have stood the test of time and are still records that people get down with, which is, you know, that we we just know that because people come to shows and they sing along and we know what songs they like and I mean, if we can get our act together, we'd like to do album shows. Mm. Like play the first and second albums. But that would be so tough for us to pull off. We'd really have to rehearse a lot. And like two of our members don't live in New York anymore, don't mm. live in the city anymore. And like, um, so anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, we made good records um, that, that I feel like, yeah, we didn't conform to that genre. Could you imagine like what those would sound like if we were trying to be something? I think a right. lot of people were right. trying to be My Chemical Romance. Like everyone started wearing makeup and like, not everybody was good at putting on makeup, so like certain guys look like fucking ridiculous. The same way that people like looked like when you look back at the hair metal scene, like how sure. certain bands looked really cool with their makeup and they had like the right look, and certain bands looked really bizarre. Like <laughs> certain members just don't look right with makeup, and uh, you know, like that whole Sergeant Pepper's like outfit style, like the suits oh, yeah. or like army suits. <laughs> yeah, the pieced out song about the Hillsborough disaster. Uh -huh. I was doing some research and like that has always been an interesting like moment that people in America don't aren't so aware of. Right. Can we talk about that song? Do you mind? Yeah, or? I don't mind. Yeah. Um so I'm a supporter of Liverpool Football Club. And uh I go into England and watch them play and I buy all the jerseys and I you know watch them actually they're kicking off in like 45 minutes okay <laughs> uh for a huge game this afternoon um which is why i told you my time constraint. i'm like ah, i kind of need to be done by yeah. a certain time anyhow so there was a crazy you know this was long before i was a liverpool supporter but a story that was um intriguing and depressing and sad and uh, that, you know, nonetheless, so, um, long story short, um, a lot of Liverpool supporters went, um, to Hillsborough, which is a stadium in Sheffield, I think. And, um, and they didn't come home. A lot of people died, um, at the game. Um, a lot of people were crushed to death in the stands. So... Obviously, that's just a tip of the iceberg of what happened. And it's crazy. A lot of people that grew up in Liverpool have way better, you know, they could tell you the real story of how it all went down. I'm just a kid from New York who went back and researched things about his football club that, you know, he may not have known. So there's, for anybody that wants to watch, you have to brace yourself because it is uh, extremely fucked up and depressing documentary, but at the same time, you know, probably a must see. Um, 30 for 30 did a, a documentary on it. Mm. I think it's just called Hillsborough. Anyway, so the way that the sun, the tabloid paper in England covered it is like they, they like shamed a lot of the victims um, and made up stories and blamed these people who had lost their lives and made up all these salacious stories about how shit really went down. And still to this day, they, the families 
of the deceased and like the Liverpool organizations that are behind this, basically that are after justice for, you know, for the, for those family members that passed away um, to basically, you know, have people brought to justice, police chiefs and things like that, that are, that are still out there that haven't been, you know, punished for changing stories, mm. telling, not telling the truth, false police reports, all this shit to cut. It's basically a cover up on what really happened and whose fault it actually was. Mm. And uh, so that song is, is in a response to just reading, just f reading about it and just being disgusted on like the way that it, it's really fantastic, the way the sun handled it. It's really fucking awesome. That paper, which is like the paper, it's a, it's a tabloid like piece of shit paper, but people buy it in England. Right. They're used to that shit. Right. It's completely banned from the whole city of Liverpool. Ah. Uh, and Sun reporters who like, you know, the back pages are all sports. Sun reporters can't come there and cover the games. And there's another Liverpool team called Everton who are like, rivals of, of Liverpool who also don't allow su the sun to enter their grounds. It's pretty cool. You walk through Liverpool, next time you're over there, you can look in the shop windows and there's stickers where it's like that say that the sun is banned in their shop, like look somewhere else, that kind of thing. It's pretty sick. That's interesting. And that's what your last line, you say boycott the sun. Yeah, yeah. And so that's interesting because then obviously there was a rivalry that became this this reinterpretation of the truth and that now i guess with people's testimonies that's that's coming out more and more yeah the justice is is continuing to come but they still have hurdles you know they're still um i'd have to read i'd have to look back on it right now and see just how you know they've made a lot of breakthroughs but these you know these families have it's been their lifelong quest to clear their the names my ex partner's dad was at there at Hillsborough. Okay. And he would talk about how how he got out just in time. Right. But how it was just like a uh yeah, it's something that with the passion and love of sports, it's like such a if you haven't been to the UK or understand how much they love football, like how that perfect storm could create such a tragedy and it's, it's Yeah, it's, um and you don't see it happen these days because because of things like that or yeah. like they, they, they change the way, I mean, they don't have standing, you know, standing room now and it's all, yeah. I mean, when I go there, you know, you, you sit, you know, my first time there, I realized like I was told repeatedly like to sit down. Because I was oh. like, oh, oh, okay, we have to all sit. Right. But if the play, if the ball comes and you're, and it's, you know, if you're getting into scoring, you know, territory, everyone kind of gets out of their seats and stands. But like, yeah. Um, actually, yeah, I, I noticed that too. I mean, soccer's had, English football has had like a history of hooliganism and things like that. Um, so that was the other thing I noticed the first time I went there. It's like, you have to sit and, there's nobody saying ice cold Budweiser, ice cold. Mm. You can't drink while you're watching the game. Oh, really? You you have to have your drinks before or at halftime. Oh. You don't like walk back in. You don't like walk back with your beers and like sit down and drink it. That's very different, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, to keep a different, a little bit of a, you know, 
uh, the days of like the 80s like hooligans and all that shit is definitely english premier league is definitely a more family friendly environment these days well i think that is like a um thank you for sharing that history even though it's like a sad song and i feel i, I shouldn't even be the one to speak on it but i that was just my i wrote i wrote a two three minute song about wow you pieces of shit that's what you that's how you handled this situation you know what i mean um but yeah every anyone listening should go back and read about it and definitely watch the documentary it's something humans should know let's talk briefly about how you get this we'll end with this but um when you started making solo music yeah like what was the process there and what was what inspired you to go that direction i started playing solo shows because that's a thing that you do <laughs> when you have to do lots of things to make a living playing music. You can't just get home from the Avalanche store. You got to go back with yourself and you got to make sure that, you know, that you're busy. And so I played solo shows for like a year without like even writing a song. And then I was like, wait a second, I should write some solo material. And so I did. Um, and I released an EP called City by the Sea that I recorded at this awesome studio that a friend of mine owns. It's it's in his garage in his house in the mountains in California. It's called Bright Mountain. And um, I got Roger from No Motive. These are all friends of mine, but Roger from No Motive, Steve Choi from the RX Bandits to produce it and play some play some stuff on it, like some instrumentation. And it's called City by the Sea. And I still love it. Like, I love playing it. I got some solo shows coming up soon where I'm going to be playing a bunch of it. Um, and yeah, and I just kept at it. And like, you know, when, you, when you're done with that and you go back and tour with Avalanche and then things just go in a cycle and it's time mm. for a record again. And I made a, another full length. I made my first full length called Survivor's Guilt um, that I toured on for like a year. Um, that I, you know, I'm really fond of, I feel very, quite a connection to the, to the solo stuff. It's all very personal. Mm. Um, and I'm writing a new one right now. I'm recording in January. Cool. A full length. Yeah. Yeah. The song Survivor's Guilt mm. really resonates with me because for me personally, and please tell me if this inter interpretation is wrong, it's that feeling when, for me, if you've left a relationship or a situation where, you're happy, but you miss, you you know you left maybe some destruction or pain in the past. And, but there's that, I love you, I hope you're okay, but I'm like, this had to happen. I don't know. Right, <laughs> right. Um, I love that song. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think there's a few angles in that song. Um, it's pretty stream of consciousness. The way I wrote the lyrics happened in like 10 minutes. You know oh, what wow. I mean? It, you know those ones where yeah. you're just... And I swear it was just, uh, I was looking, uh, my apartment looks out onto Oak Street. Um, it's nice, this nice little street. And this dog was running down the block. Cause I liked, I just played my guitar standing by the window. <laughs> and this dog was running away from its owner. And uh, it, dogs don't know any better. They don't know why they're running away. They just know that they're running and they like doing that, you know? Sure. And um, so this guy was like obviously freaked out cause he was like gonna lose his dog. And so that was, that's the first line of that that song is you didn't mean to run away. You weren't using your heart. You weren't using your head. And it's it's wow. just about this dog that was running away from its owner. And then I tied it into, like you said, a relationship um, and also actual loss, you know. Um, 
it was pretty that record is like i don't know what the hell i mean you know i don't think it was coincidence like i don't know what it was about that record but like as soon as i wrote it and recorded it and put it out i lost a really good friend of mine suddenly mm. and we were you know we're still completely devastated by it but like i we, i wrote that record um so that i could get through my friend's death that didn't even happen yet it was really fucked up like when i when i went on tour and started playing those songs i'm like oh my god how did i know that this was how did I know that I needed these songs? How did I know that I need I need to sing these songs to get over something that didn't even happen yet? You know, those songs were gifts that helped you with the with the tragedy. Yeah, that yeah. that happened like months later. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty pretty tough. Have you written uh, after after the fact about those feelings and that losing a friend? Like, yeah, I wrote yeah. one song on the new movie life record um, that I kind of regret putting on the new movie life record. Um, because, hmm, it's like, I think it would have been more suited stripped down, um, and personal, but it's in like this upbeat rock song and we never play it live because mm. I never want to. <laughs> and I think that I would be able to, I think I might rework it and put it into a solo, at least a show setting, but there's a song on the new movie life record called Blood Moon that is about um lyrically i think anybody could get down and understand what i'm going through and what i'm talking about um but i think in hindsight i should have saved it for my solo record the lyrics um would you ever rework and re-release it as solo or i don't i don't see why not yeah. um i don't you know rise records is cool they own the movie life recordings um for this last record i'm sure if i explain to them why i wanted to re-release it that they'd be cool with it um, so maybe that's a good shout. Maybe if I rework that and kind of give it the more Vinny solo kind of vibe and um, personality and kind of um, uh, um, words are failing me right now. Sorry. Um, treatment. Like, yeah, just give yeah. it that right treatment and like that right um really intimate kind of feeling because yeah i mean i'm sure my solo record's going to be depressing <laughs> in a good way i listen i love depressing songs it helps me um it helps me feel stuff and it helps me feel okay about you know yeah. life's sad life's fucking brutal you know <laughs> um life can be brutal life does not isn't always brutal but one of the, the happier songs i like is two runaways yeah that's a great love song man that's you you, you 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 i mean my point is like songwriting is to be able to do both emotions is like the test is is the challenge and for me I, you know a lot of my stuff is funny and silly and pop culture but when i can write something real or like about a friend or about love i feel like i tipping the scales is healthy you know definitely yeah. and you, you don't you don't want people to get you'll get sick of yourself your brooding self and people will too you know um it's like Morrissey's the only guy that's never written a happy song that everyone, you know, not that he is. I think that there's a lot of, I, I mean, Pedro the Lion songs are like his sad songs are the ones that really get me and Jets to Brazil, Jets to Brazil sad songs. Um, but yeah, you need a balance to run away. I mean, I, 
that was like my introduction to love songs, period. Yeah. You know, um, well, I wrote one love song on Avalanche United. That's like super love song. And th that's called, Is This Really Happening? And then I, there's one more love song. <laughs> I'm sparing with the love songs, but I like to have, I like to achieve a good love song. Sometimes a love song could totally not hit the listener and be like, that's dumb. Like that's, but if you execute it the right way. So I, I appreciate you saying that because I think that's a cool song too. And I really like that song. I was playing it today on guitar because Whoa, that's um, I'm just, I have some solo shows like in a month or so that, that I woke up early this morning, it's raining. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'm just going to play guitar. So I started like playing all these songs that I might just dust off. If I can play 30 different songs on this tour, because I have the choice, like I should do that. And yeah. I should, if someone calls something out that I totally wouldn't have been prepared for. That's kind of my new thing. I'm going to tour a lot next year solo because I'm going to release a record, a solo record next year. And I want to have all the new songs, all the solo songs, and a lot of Avalanche and Movie Life songs to just pull them out and not be the guy that goes, I don't know that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want to like... And I, you know, it's cool. I have time when I get home from a six week tour, I'm chilling at home. So I should use that time to like sing more, play more and just know more of my catalog so that I can, so that people are happy and know that I'll give them what they want when they, when I come to see them play. Where can fans stay up on future dates? Like wh what's a good place to direct people? I think the best place is just my personal Instagram account. Cool. Um, which is just Vinnie Caruana, V-I-N-N-I-E-C-A-R-U-A-N-A -A -A, um, on Instagram. I, I just, I all my stuff, here's some tour dates, here's what I'm up to, here's what I had for breakfast at, um, in a, in a um, Cracker Barrel in Tennessee or something, you know what I mean? But just kind of keeping people up to date with what I'm up to and, and um I do lots of different things. There's a lot of projects. So I just like to let them know what I'm doing and when that's, you know, keep everybody involved in my world. It's cool that, that you have one platform you use. That's like, yeah, that, that's like, smart, man. Twitter's, Twitter, I, I, Twitter, I get a lot of soccer news from. <laughs> right. But I, I haven't posted much on Twitter in the last while. Um, I think Instagram is just cool. Hey, ha everyone have a good day. Let's not let's not write like hurtful things at each other all day long on Twitter. Like Instagram, I feel like is more like, hey, this is what I'm up to if you care. If you don't care, you could unfollow me. But this is what I'm up to. I'm over here and look, that's the view. Isn't that right. a nice view? Like right. I just think Instagram is like Instagram doesn't give me bad dreams, you know what I mean? <laughs> if I if I'm reading Twitter before I go to bed, it's like so much negativity and stuff and you yeah. know, like especially with just the way shit is with like Trump administration and how embarrassed we all are to be American people. I mean, I, I shouldn't speak for everybody, but embarrassed that my fellow countrymen felt that it was a good idea to elect that dude, Yeah, you know, and all the fallout, you know, this is worse than I, and it's only going to get more fucked up, but, He's actually playing the part of like the villain in the movie, like the bad guy in the movie. He's such a piece of shit and he, all his people are pieces of shit. And I'll say this, I'm not mad at people for voting for Trump. 
because certain people were like, he'll shake things up, right? Mm-hmm. I'm mad at people if they're still behind him now mm. with what they know. I'm mad if you're actually that much of a fucking asshole where you're still standing behind him now that you know what you know and everything that's happening. Humanity's not happening. Um, and I'm mad at the people, there's people in my family that voted for Trump that stand by their decision. Um, in my extended family, I should make that clear. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm mad at them for one, sticking by it. And two, maybe knowing that it was, this is fucked up, but just not wanting to be wrong. So they just stick by it. If I would have, I would have never voted for the guy. I mean, I grew up here in New York. He's just a fucking loudmouth yeah. loser um, who's tanked every business and, and defrauded so many people. He's like this millionaire just because the money doesn't run out, you know? Um, he's not this self-made working, you know, every man's man. I don't know how the fuck he convinced the middle of America to relate to him. Mm. The guy that lives in a gilded penthouse in New York City. They're not supposed to be down with that. They connected to racism, plain and simple. And if sexism, fear of a woman in charge. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. God, you guys want a lady? Like this is, you know, what is this? I thought this was America, you know. And that's, and that's like you said, Instagram, it's harder to, you can regram, but you can't, retweet in the same way where you people can spread hate and division and sadness and you know what pain and that's a good point man it's like your that's the thing arts agency now it's like your truth and your beautiful perspective is more important than oh haha i I identify with this brand you know i identify with such and such exactly yeah yeah. and like I think Instagram, people get like a bad rap. Oh, people on Instagram always showing their happy lives. They're not showing all the nonsense. It's like, yeah, that's just me in real life too. If I see you at the bar, so what's up? (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to unload all this negativity that, or like, listen, there's a time and a place to be like, to sit down with a good friends over a pint and talk about some serious shit that's going on. But- if you're out on a weeknight going to have a drink in a bar, it's because you're unwinding a little bit mm-hmm. from your day. And so I just think that's life, you know, to 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 be like, oh, yeah. Because on my Instagram, it's straight positivity. Because um, that's what I want to put out there into the world. And I'm doing that, you know, tonight if I go out for a drink, I'm not going to talk about all the shit that's bothering me in the world. Or how something's fucked up in my life. I'm just going to talk, like, just blow some steam off and hang out. And You know what I mean? So, fuck yeah. Instagram's awesome. Twitter, I've tried to quit so many times. Yeah. Um, or I think I might still just, like, erase it and then, like, start a new one where I just follow, like, soccer news. Anonymously. Because I do get a lot of, like, there's a lot of sources of, like, local people that, like, live in Liverpool and stuff like that where I get really good info Mm. and info that I'm not going to get through, like, you know, American news outlets or anything. You are the first guest I've had who is verified on Instagram. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I got warned that I'm going to lose that or something. What? 
I got warned. <laughs> like somebody was like, "You need to send your phone and email," and I was like, "I think this is a scam." They want to hack you, probably. Yeah, and Maybe. I'm like, "That's weird. I don't give a fuck if I have a fucking blue check mark next to my name. I'm still gonna, just, you know, does it make it any less valid? Uh, what you're saying, you know." I don't know how that, that just appeared one day too. Maybe someone had like a, an imposter account and Instagram was like, this is the real guy. Yeah. Know, something like that. That's what happened to me on Twitter, but I'm still trying to figure out on Instagram. Maybe I need to make a fake MC Lars. The thing, the thing just appeared one day That's and sad. I didn't notice. And yeah. someone goes, oh, I think my wife actually was like, oh, you're famous. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? And I'm just, she's like, there's a blue check next to your name. And I'm like, oh, I don't know how that happened. So, yeah. Um, Vinny, I appreciate your time, man. Thank you for great insight and like um, all your knowledge. And I, it's cool to talk to someone who's had so many different projects mm. and but still who loves the music and still doing it. Like that's oh, inspiring. I'm trying, man. I'm trying. I'm, I'll be 39 next week. Happy early uh, birthday. Thank you. And, um, you know, I'm just, I enjoy it still. You know what I mean? It's sometimes it's hard to make a living doing it. Sometimes you're like, holy shit, this is the best job ever. But I'm not ready to stop um, writing music full time. I need it to be happy. And just the writing and recording make fulfills me. And then traveling also fulfills me. You know, I love traveling and I love playing shows. Um, so I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm sure there'll be a time when I'm like sick of doing it and I'll do it more less, but, um, I'm trying to do it a lot more until I do it less. That's great. Yeah. And, uh, and you always have be able to do reunions of all your different projects. Yeah. I'll, I'll always have stuff to do. I, I'm actually, I just recorded a seven inch with Sammy Siegler from like youth of today, judge, um, plays drums in shelter, plays drums in gorilla biscuits. Wow. We recorded a thing. That I don't know. We're 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 gonna be coming out with a seven inch. We're trying to find a label for it, and then yeah, solo record, and a new pieced out record is finished cool. too. Can, so there's it, a lot of shit. There's a lot of shit that's gonna come out before I'm forty. <laughs> another solo full length, a pieced out full length, a seven inch with a yet to be named hardcore project, um, with Sammy. And like solo touring and movie life touring, all before him. I got, I got one more year till I'm forty. Is there something we could like end with that we could play on the podcast? Let's do. Uh, it's a solo song that became a movie life song. It's called "Pour Two Glasses." It's like the ballad on the new movie life record. I like singing this song. Uh, I was practicing it today too. So, "Pour Two Glasses" from the newest movie life record. Movie life records called. Cities in Search of a Heart, and this is Poor Two Glasses, which is another song that I wrote in like 10 minutes. It all just came out at in while my wife was in the shower. <laughs> so when she came out, I was like, I have a song. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I wrote an entire song while you're in the shower, and it's good, and I'm going to put it on the record. Uh, so yeah, thanks for having me, dude. It's good to see you. Thank you, Vinny. Here it is, and uh, check out his new stuff, and um, thank you for your time. Thanks, dude. so down yesterday You were never one for winter Relentlessly great So poor to 
glasses Leave the light in the driveway on I need to feel your trembling lips on my neck I'll never leave you alone again To stare at this dreadful world In its cold, dark eyes again Life can be such a I'm not coming home for Christmas I'm coming home for you Stack your troubles on my shoulders And take a deep breath Don't choke on your freedom though Cold, lonely morning They aren't yours anymore I think I could already see the fire in your eyes I'll never leave you alone again To stare this dreadful world And it's cold, dark Life can be such a rule. I'm not coming home for Christmas I'm coming home for you I'm coming home for you Movie Life, Pour Two Glasses. Be sure to check it out. You can find that song online. Support them. Support Vinny. Really, really great guy. Follow him on Instagram. He has a lot of really cool photos. He's a great photographer, great musician, prolific guy, interesting guy. And uh, yeah, it was great to sit down and talk with him. This has been the MC Lars Podcast. Next week, we talk to Lewis Logic. Lewis Logic used to be in a group called The Demigods. I met him at South by Southwest a few years ago. Adam Warrock kind of got me into him. And... Um, He's friends with Megaran. He he used to rap for a while on tour, and we talk about his sobriety and his marriage and being a father and the real estate hustle in New York, and it's just a really great interview. Very long, in-depth interview with an interesting, talented guy. So check out my interview with Lewis Logic next week. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash mclars for those infinite jests, raps, and until then, have a great week. Bye, everyone. Thanks again.